Edie is delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday the 22nd of December and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's festive special episode, we're going to be talking climate cafes and mock cops with the youth empowerment organisation that is Force of Nature. At the moment, obviously, there are many crises that can be spoken about and that need to be spoken about so that people feel more comfortable and are just creating action just through their discussions. We'll be looking ahead to the crucial climate topic of 2024 that is green finance and non-financial disclosures with Lloyds Bank Corporate Markets. I absolutely think that the UK can maintain that sort of leadership position in certain areas. And one of the um, examples is really around the the TPT framework or the transition plan task force. What we really need from companies is the how they're going to deliver their net zero ambition. And the TPT framework is a place that we can start to, to really be able to assess and understand how companies are actually going to deliver some very ambitious goals that have been set. And the team and I will be looking back at the year that was, capped off of course by the recent COP28 climate summit and of course we'll be closing out with our very own big fat sustainability quiz of the year. All of that and more covered in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. Welcome back, I suppose I should say. Um, It's been a while. Edie's publisher Luke Nichols here, ready to round up some of the most inspiring and exciting sustainability and climate action stories from across the globe. Uh, For many of you, uh, I think this actually might be your first time listening to this show and and migrating across from our recent spin-off podcast because myself and, and the team are back in the UK, fresh from COP28, where we delivered up the... COP28 covered daily podcast, which ended up being a smash hit of a series. Now, COP has, of course, come to an end and our Dubai town is slowly fading away. But the ED podcast lives on because I'm delighted to be back here in the studio for our main podcast with none other than ED's deputy editor, Sarah George, and content editor, Matt Mace. And I suppose that's actually only a half truth because Matt is technically on his Christmas annual leave right now, um, but so dedicated he is to the cause that he's dialed into us remotely. Matt, hello. How many Christmas movies are you on? I think I'm on zero Christmas <laughs> movies. Wow. Um, I think with work being as busy as it has been the last few months, obviously only just getting back from Dubai, <clears throat> it's more just catching up with like the, the TV and films that I, I haven't had a chance to watch yet. So Christmas still feels like it's on the, on the back burner so far. Yeah, similar for me, I must say. Sarah, um, IRL Sarah, I should say, here in the studio. Are you feeling festive here in this very no-frills basement studio? Not so much in the studio, but I can't believe both of you. I mean, I've personally watched Home Alone at least twice. Um, we had our office Christmas party last week, and I nabbed many min- mini mince pie to mm-hmm. stop them ending up as food waste, so just call me a climate activist <laughs> for eating all of those. So, yeah, pretty festive. Yeah. 
good. Well, that's our sort of us and our semi-festive introductions out of the way. Um, guys, I think we have to start with a bit of a reflection over the past few weeks in particular here in this kind of recap episode because um, for those of us that have been under a rock for the past few weeks, uh, there was a certain COP28 climate summit taking place over in Dubai that the three of us are not long back from. Now, we've, we have summarised and analysed all of the goings-on at COP, I think, as much as we could have on the ED.net website and in that spin-off show, as I mentioned earlier on. But I suppose the benefit of us speaking now a week or so after that final whistle um, is that we've had time for it to settle. So, Matt, how are you feeling about it all? How would you kind of begin to summarise where that COP ended up and, and I suppose how it sets us up for, for 24? I think it's very much a, uh, a COP of what, what could have been um, rather than what necessarily was. I, I think we summarised this on the on the um, COP28 covered podcast, but I think if you, the, the, the deal or the text, I should say, that we kind of got in the end, if, if you had kind of put that on the table at the start, people have been like, hey, you know what, going into the UAE with all the kind of um, issues and stories around the COP presidency and the, the stuff that's come out since them about the deals they've been able to make around fossil fuels, you'd probably view that as a pretty strong deal with the language on fossil fuels being in the text. Um, but given what was discussed during those two weeks, given the general sense of optimism that the phase out could could generally be a, a kind of a key component of this, it, it does kind of feel slightly regretful that it wasn't able to be as ambitious um, as it was, especially because a lot of the kind of key stuff around carbon markets and finance have kind of been kicked down the, the road to kind of uh, uh, Azerbaijan next year or even Brazil. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a, uh, it's a, a, a kind of viral clip, but I don't think I can say it out loud on the podcast, um, but of uh, the former AC Milan manager, Catuso, uh, and it's like sometimes maybe good. Uh, I won't say the other part out uh, loud, but um, mm. that's, kind of, that's kind of what this cop was, essentially. Hmm. <laughs> I'm guessing you, you understood Sometimes that maybe bad, but right. a swear word uh, instead of bad. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, Sarah, anything you'd like to add to that, hopefully not in- involving swear words? Um, I mean, I think Matt's right in that we spent so long talking about whether it would be a fossil fuel phase out or phase down, and we ended up with a transition away from fossil fuels. Mm. So it's a secret third thing to bring in um, another meme. So there was a lot of talk about what could have come. Yes, it's a strong signal, but it is just that signal the risk now is that we're going into another year where the energy price crisis rages on another year when there are live conflicts around the world and another year closer to that 2030 reducing emissions goal sustainable development goals so strong signal great but we're beyond the point of needing a signal now Mm. so it is sort of glass half empty glass half full maybe santa drank the other half (laughs) of of the glass for me Mm nice summary and as i say you can read more about that all on the website now we've got plenty of recap summary articles including a lot of kind of 2024 whole year summaries i know you're working on sarah um, and i think we'll stick with you because um this is maybe the part of the show that i'll be honest and tell you that i read the briefing notes uh, coming into this and saw that you'd written down sarah the idea of christmas past present and future from a sustainability context maybe i've upset that already because we just talked a little bit about the present in regards to cop but uh, where are we going for the for this podcast in terms of interviews yeah, where are we going? We did the uh, guest of Christmas past, present and future a few years ago, back when I just joined and I thought it was a really fun way of sort of um, rounding out the out the year and covering a few themes at once. So in terms of our first guest, our guest of Christmas past, 
Um, I thought it'd be great to catch up with the Force of Nature team because this time last year I went along to the Natural History Museum to their flagship climate cafe, a wonderful location to be recording a podcast from um, and essentially find out a bit more about what the climate cafe movement is and why around COP27 starting in Egypt last winter was the activation point. They recently announced plans to activate again this year, but in a slightly different way. So I thought who better to catch up with than the Force of Nature team. Uh, Spoke this year with Meg, who is their lead for communications and also previous worker on mock cops. Yeah, mock cops. Do you want to explain that briefly? Yeah, so ahead of the actual cops, there are essentially mock cops i'm sure people will be familiar with like model un that kids go Mm. to at school so think of it as like that or like a rehearsal dinner it's also a chance to show as we've talked about what could have been Mm. because it is mocked up by people that aren't the official negotiators yeah okay well another nice reference there to the ghost of christmas past Mm -hmm. um so let's get into it then here's sarah's chat with force of nature's head of marketing and communications and mock cop organizer megan stillwell in full yes so as i'm sure we'll have just mentioned in the studio it's great to be kicking off this podcast by revisiting the great team at force of nature and it's good to have their head of marketing and communications meg stillwell on the call with me today how are you hey sarah it's so great to be here i am great today thank you very much no thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come onto this podcast and to yeah provide a recap on something that proved super popular on the podcast last year um which was climate cafes but for all of our listeners who are maybe newer since then or need a refresher um we should probably start with an introduction to force of nature and its climate cafe work please absolutely yeah so Force of Nature is the leading nonprofit turning climate anxiety into action. We work with young people to help them feel empowered to take action and develop the skills that they need to create real change. And we're a team of 11 people under the age of 35, all looking to make the world a better place, a better and brighter place for all. And our, yeah, our Climate Cafe initiative started in the lead up to COP27 last year when we realised that we needed more spaces to talk about the climate crisis, how it makes us feel and what we can do to feel empowered to take action. Yeah, we needed those spaces closer to home whilst world leaders were gathering uh, in Egypt. And we just recognised that it's important to come together as a community to find comfort in our shared experiences and learn from each other's different perspectives and just generally model the world that we wish to create. So we started this Climate Cafe initiative to uh, help people create community organised spaces. The Climate Cafe initiative itself isn't like a completely new concept, but it was the first one that was had like a completely global and youth-led vision and probably should describe what a climate cafe is as well. So it's a community organised space for young people uh, and anyone really to have open conversations about the climate crisis and how it makes us feel. And no climate cafe will look the same. They'll all be completely different. They could be in a place of worship. They could be in your local park. They could be literally at a cafe. It could be two people. It could be 50 people. All of them will look completely different and will, um, yeah, build on different things like panel discussions or just 
just informal conversations but we hope that all of them will be like safe open and accessible spaces for everyone yeah and essentially you guys are our guest of christmas past because we came to the natural history museum in 2022 to check out a big climate cafe there and this one was really a focal point so how did that go and what other climate cafes were held in 2022 as you say in the lead up to cop 27 Yes, so we were so grateful to have Edie at the uh, Natural History Museum. So that was the climate cafe that was ran by Force of Nature over four days. And we were joined by scientists and artists and youth activists for like, various panel discussions and speeches. And it was completely free and open to the public. Uh, but we didn't want like, the Climate Cafe initiative isn't just for Force of Nature to host. We didn't want it to be bottlenecked to us. So the whole point of it is that literally anyone can host a Climate Cafe in a way that is suited to like their community. And so there were there have been 190 people who have hosted Climate Cafes now in uh, at least 49 countries in around the world. And in 2022, there was a brilliant climate cafe hosted in Kampala, Uganda, the Kampala Climate Cafe. And there was one hosted by the Dubai Climate Collective in Dubai. There have just been like literally hundreds all around the world and all of them have been different. Like some of them have been absolutely huge. Other Others have been like climate cafes within families, but it just keeps growing and growing. That's fantastic to hear. And we're speaking just a few days before a huge moment for this project in 2023. So it'd be great to hear about what's going on this time, how it's maybe different from last year, considering the the learnings and the experiences from over the past year. Absolutely. So, yeah, they've been a huge success and they do just seem to keep building and people seem to yeah keep creating new ways of coming together. One of our main takeaways from last year was that a lot of our energy that we put into hosting our own climate cafe at the Natural History Museum in London uh, could have been spent kind of creating this decentralised vision that we have where essentially we want more climate cafes happening around the world and um, by people outside of the Force of Nature team because as, as I said like we're only one group of people and it can't be bottlenecked to us so this year, instead of running our own flagship climate cafe, we just decided to ramp up all of our resources going into other cafes. So last year we offered a micro grant scheme to help people who would not be able to run a cafe, people from the most affected um, people in areas by the climate crisis, marginalised and disadvantaged groups. And this year we tripled that funding that we were offering to climate cafe hosts to enable as many people as possible to host climate cafes. So instead of doing our London one, we were like, okay, let's put all of our energy and resources into helping other people host their own because that's the the whole vision. And on the 30th of November this year, we wanted to connect the climate cafes happening around the world so that people were doing them in their own individual uh, community areas but they then felt connected to the ones that were happening everywhere else so on the 30th of november the first day of cop 28 we're running a global activation day to unite hundreds of activists through these climate cafes worldwide 
Um, and we kind of hope that it will be yeah, a way to connect people and also just to remind people of the power of community and what community organised events can look like. And we have currently around 40 climate cafes officially registered for that global activation day. And I know that that number will keep growing um, in, the, in the next week. Great. So exciting times. I look forward to seeing all of that. And I know we've sort of gone over basically what a climate cafe is, what it can be, how it can be big, small. It can be community led, family led. It can be anywhere that there are two or more people and a drink, really. But I wanted to dive into really what you're likely to see when you go to a climate cafe. So from observation, what sort of things get discussed or asked most at at climate cafes? How do you see the, the conversations tending to go? So great question. And I'm going to start with a caveat because uh, because the whole point of the Climate Cafe initiative is that it is completely organised by communities and therefore tailored to each different community and their needs. That's kind of why we don't want to be hugely involved in each one, because we want them to be. Yeah, like to have the nuances of the community that they've been organised in. So all of these conversations, all of the questions, everything that's discussed is completely different. But we have asked our community what are the common things that they usually talk about. And it's anything from climate anxiety and the other other feelings related to the, the climate crisis to environmental racism. Often people talk about what makes us feel hopeless and Contrastingly, what makes us feel hopeful for the future and world events too. One of the great things about the climate cafe space is that, yes, it's geared towards climate and environmental conversations. But you can talk about anything directly related to that or otherwise. So at the moment, obviously, there are many crises that can be spoken about and that need to be spoken about so that uh, people feel more comfortable and are just creating action just through their discussions so it's a real it's a real range at the one I hosted in Bristol last year we spoke a lot about about what we envision the future to look like and what are our barriers to that vision and also like what gets us down like what makes us feel like it's not going to happen and then what is bringing us hope in this present moment and a lot of people said the hope was in community spaces well, I'm glad that there's hope there as well as as fears. And we've spoken a lot there, Meg, about how best to encourage people to have open conversations um, and then how to make those conversations more inclusive and impactful. And this is always a question that gets asked around COPs. So I'd love to ask, with your experience, what can be done to amplify the voice of the general public in climate decision Um, making because every COP there's always a fear that this won't get amplified enough. Um, At the moment here in the UK the Prime Minister is saying a lot about what people can't afford but not a a lot about public engagement and comms. So what are your thoughts on how we can really take these conversations and get them to influence change? Another great question Sarah. Um, Yeah so as you as you kind of implied it's absolutely key that the general public are able to influence climate decision making and at force of nature we 
pay particular attention to supporting young people into those decision-making spaces, partly because we're a youth-led organisation, but also because future generations are most likely to be impacted by the climate crisis. And we have seen some really great steps to including and amplifying young people's voices in these decision-making spaces. Last year at COP27, um, so it's 2022, it was the first ever COP to have a dedicated youth pavilion for youth de- youth delegates. And I think it's also the first ever one to have like an official youth envoy for the COP27 president. And before there had there had never been a designated space for children and young people in decision-making areas, despite the fact that it will be, yeah, that future generations will be the most impacted as, as the climate warms and everything that's, yeah. I'm not going to go into the doom there. <laughs> I started to go and I was like, nope. Um, but this this pavilion has been a really great space for engaging wider voices in decision making spaces, like a, a diversity of voices. So I'd, I'd like to see more of those kind of things happening. And then also, I don't know if you've seen this, Sarah, but there's been a really interesting report released by KPMG recently. It's the Net Zero Influences Report, and it kind of um, shows how important young professionals are in overcoming net zero challenges and also how they can actually improve a business's success. Um, And so, yeah, just kind of doubling down on the importance of having those those youth voices in all decision making spaces not just at COP but you know like in everyday life like how can your how can your employees and your team impact your decision making and help your progress towards ESG commitments so then in the report they offer this step-by-step framework for creating intergenerational forums and intergenerational forums are something that we think are really important at Force of Nature um, and one of the steps in that framework is to upskill young professionals and so that they can like effectively take part in like leadership conversations. And that's something that we offer at Force of Nature. It's one of our theories of change is we have this free training program for young people um, so that they can feel equipped and empowered to like, position themselves in these decision making spaces. And if we don't help people of whatever age, feel aware of their emotions feel empowered to take action and then to give them the skills to actually take that action then it's going to be very hard for them to break into the decision making spaces which have traditionally been limited to a very small group of people so yeah for us that process it starts with um, a mindset shift so uh, helping people feel less like they're you know too small to make a difference and more like their voice is important and needs to be heard and then equipping them with the skills that they need to take action so it's not just like oh now you feel like you can take action but you don't have any of the skills it's like both both sides of the coin you feel empowered and you have the skills to take action so you can participate in this intergenerational forum completely understand that we've seen a lot of times businesses actually changing their tack because of employee pressure but to do that as you say they have to have the right culture and be willing to hire people that can be internal challenges and upskill them to do that challenging 
um, effectively. So lots of food for thought there, Meg. Um, I know we're nearly out of time for this bit of the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on um, and sharing all your Climate Cafe learnings. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yes, thank you very much to Megan and to Force of Nature there. Uh, right, Sarah, you've got us into the swing of things now. So we've done guest of Christmas past. We now move into guest of Christmas future. So who do we speak to next and what's this? What's the segue? I mean, you've thrown off my segue by doing present at the middle and that being us. The segue was going to be COP um, and um, climate-related conversations. So we've talked there about conversations between the general public. I guess we can now move on to essentially disclosures and conversations with businesses and government. So for our guest of Christmas Future, it was great to sit down with Hannah from the Lloyds Bank corporate and institutional team, who's put together a handy preview of what to expect in terms of green finance and financial and non-financial disclosures in the year ahead. So looking ahead, it is shaping up to be a bumper year. Um, We cover everything from fund labelling to the alphabet soup of disclosure requirements from TCFD, TNFD, ISSB. Um, So, yeah, it really helps us make sense of what's on the horizon. I don't know about anyone else, but I find it really hard to collect my thoughts about these sort of topics um, after a a busy time of year. So it was great to catch up with Hannah and look into that in a bit more detail. Okay, well, let's get straight into it then. So here's Sarah's chat with Lloyds Bank Corporate Markets Head of Sustainability, Hannah Simons, in full. Yes, so for this next part of the podcast, our Christmas future part, it's great to be looking ahead at what's to come for green finance with Hannah Simons, who is Head of Sustainability at Lloyds Bank Corporate Markets. Hannah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to have uh, the opportunity to be catching up with you today and really looking forward to to what we can expect next year. Yeah, lots to go over, a veritably long sort of Christmas slash New Year's wish list. But before we get into that, Hannah, I know you haven't come on the podcast before, so it'd be great to start with a little introduction to yourself. Sarah, I joined uh, LBCM or Lloyds Bank Corporate Markets in June of this year in a newly created role as Head of Sustainability. What that means is that I'm working very closely with all of my colleagues to really embed sustainability into the conversations we're having with our clients around their own sustainable finance agenda. The other part of my role, and um, one that I I love um, dearly, is actually also working across the wider Lloyds Banking Group to support um, and enable the delivery of our ambitious net zero goals. So I work closely with um, the group environmental sustainability team here at Lloyds Bank as well. And it's great to have you on to really pick your brains about what's going to be the big trend in terms of green finance and green corporate finance next year. And just going through some of the things that we've been covering in recent months, I think it'd be fair to say that next year looks like it might be a big turning point for green finance labelling. So the UK might clarify a bit more on that. In January, we're going to get the green finance taxonomy next year, barring a major further delay. So how important is this for unlocking finance for low carbon sectors and what do we need to see to really maximise this opportunity next year and beyond? I am very optimistic about what next year might bring and if we might start by looking at the fund um, labelling rules, I think this is going to have a tremendously positive impact. 
For evidence, I think we can look at the implementation of the European regulations. That's the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, which were introduced in um, March of 2021. Now, these disclosure regulations were focused on asset managers. And um, the European regulator was clear that they were not designed to be a labelling exercise. I've used that word carefully because obviously the UK, and I'm delighted by this, is using the um, sustainable disclosure um, regulations to be a labelling exercise. Now, certainly what we have seen, though, so European regulator set out that that wouldn't be the case. But actually, in um, Europe, it's certainly turned into a labelling exercise. But SFDR is just one part of the entire European Sustainable Finance Act. And it's really important to remind ourselves of the overarching objective of that finance um, agenda. And that is to drive the capital that's required into technologies, products and services, which will support the transition to a net zero economy. Now, what we've seen in Europe, so with the arrival of these disclosure regulations, this is why I'm optimistic um, for the UK that once we have these in place, we will see capital, we'll see investment flowing into these critical areas needed to deliver net zero. And if I may draw on, again, some of the, um, the data that we're seeing coming through from Europe, funds into sustainable um, funds have remained quite robust. Um, you know, it has been a more challenged environment recently, um, but we've seen, you know, flows over the third quarter this year of over $15 billion. I'm using Morningstar data. And now we have over 5,000 um, sustainable funds registered in Europe with some 2.4 trillion of assets. Now, these assets are supporting that transition that we need by providing that capital into the companies to develop technologies and develop those products. So certainly through that enhanced transparency we see through a fund labelling process, in my view, we will absolutely see capital flowing. Now, when we think about the UK position, clearly we're still you know, under discussion. We, we haven't got the final um, uh, position, but in the, the UK, it's likely we'll have a sustainable impact label. Um, in Europe, that's similar to um, the Article 9 um, standard. Now, those funds are seeking investment in companies that can demonstrate that they're driving sustainable outcomes. So critical, again, to meeting those net zero commitments that the UK has made. Now, what do we need to make that, you know, you asked about how do we maximise um, this opportunity? Look, I think we need a, a cohesive strategy rather like we've seen in Europe that impacts that full value chain for investments. And that's certainly been recognised by the FCA because the sustainable disclosure regulations, as you've highlighted, are just part of the bigger picture. The UK taxonomy, which will define those sustainable activities, the disclosures that companies will be required to make to actually be able to allow asset managers to make decisions on how companies are transitioning transitioning is also critical here. Yeah, and transition is something I want to come to because as much as we need finance for sectors that are already green, the Prime Minister has said that he wants to make the UK a world leader in transition finance. Um, so finance to essentially help hard to evade sectors make the transition and the taxonomy may well include a label for that. So I wanted to get your view on why that's important 
how that will impact banks and then also how we can make sure that it's not just focused on the carbon transition part but also on the just transition part because at the moment we're definitely seeing a lot of questions about is the UK properly looking at a just transition given things like the impending steel um, plant closures and potential oil refinery closure in Scotland that we're hearing about this this month so I guess my question is is there going to be a transition label do we need it and how can it include the social aspect as well as the carbon aspect do we need a transition label um absolutely yes and the reason I so believe in this goes back to some of your the comments that you're making, because in order to actually deliver a successful outcome, of course, yes, we need finance to go to those and um, those green companies already. But we need the economy, the entire economy to transition to deliver that net zero commitment. We need trillions of dollars globally to facilitate this. We need those high emitters today to go on that transition. So for me, a transition label is at the heart of this and is critical to actually a successful outcome. Now, when we go this route, or you know, I so I see this as absolutely inevitable. What clearly then is very important is how you actually demonstrate the, the improvements that you're expecting from a company and how you can measure that. So clearly, one of the first things that um, companies will be able, will be required to do is set out um, those key performance indicators which demonstrate how they are transitioning through time. That allows um, everyone in the value chain, all stakeholders to, if you like, hold those companies to account for that performance um, through time. Now, again, one of the things that I think is critical here is that we look to wider developments so that we don't create more and more challenge for these companies that are going on this journey. So, for example, the KPIs could, for instance, be based on the outputs that we've seen from the Transition Plan Task Force, their sector guidance. Companies could use the very metrics that are being required to be disclosed under the TPT framework as part of those KPIs. So again, I'm not trying to suggest that we need to create new things. We should be absolutely looking to how we can leverage and work together with other industry developments. Now, you asked about the um, the just part of this, and I fully agree. We all know what our ambition is. That, I think, has been very clearly stated. But now, actually, it is so critical that we turn our attention to those broader social and other sort of climate impacts that we might see. Now, I think of the Just Transition as ensuring that fairness and equity as we um, see that transition. And certainly, I think it's fair to say in the UK, we've had firsthand experience, haven't we, of seeing what can happen to communities as um, we, we go through an energy transition and thinking about what happened um, you know, to, to sort of communities, that, particularly in the north of England, as we transitioned from um, coal to gas in the 1980s. You know, clearly, I think we can learn from that and really therefore support you know, communities, workers and supply chains as we go through the, the transition. What will make um, the Just Transition successful? I think there are a number of elements that will need to come together here. 
really the foundation, the starting point has to be robust government and policy that has um, very clear um, objectives. We certainly need that buy-in from companies and, of course, financial institutions. Companies really need to think more broadly about the risks that may actually come to fruition as they go through that transition, and particularly, um, as you've highlighted, those social risks. We truly need global action and also local action as well. Emerging economies are going to be more impacted than developed economies. However, within developed economies, as I've already demonstrated and highlighted through our own um, transition from coal to gas, we do need to really localise how we're, we're delivering the just transition. Sector pathways are certainly part of that, and, and we've touched on that already. The final point I say is we do need to mobilise the financial um, services industry, and it is therefore critical that financial companies are therefore taking into account not just the climate elements, but also um, the just transition elements as well. Yeah, I understand that I asked you three big questions there sort of sandwiched into one, but maybe I'll narrow it down to something that you mentioned. You mentioned how essentially measurement is crucial to proper labels. So transition finance depends on knowing where companies are starting, where they're trying to go and whether they're on track. And that's in terms of not only carbon and energy, but also you mentioned that, uh, delivering the social outcomes that they promise. So it's probably good that another key thing we're seeing on the horizon is enhanced requirements for corporate sustainability disclosures. So I'd love to get your views on what is coming in the EU and the UK and even globally with the ISSB in terms of will that help to unlock green corporate finance, do you think? Sarah, what is coming is a deluge of um, sustainable disclosure requirements globally. But I see this as a positive development because, as you've highlighted, the foundation to the entire transition to a green economy begins with understanding data. And today, that lack of um, availability of data together with questions over the quality of it, certainly impede investment into um, sustainable finance. Now, what we're seeing, um, Europe, like it has done um, in every element of its sustainability um, regulations, has moved quicker than the rest of the globe. And we're already subject to the EU's CSRD framework or the Corporate Social Responsibility Directive. And you know, as part of that, European companies plus global companies with European operations are already subject to providing this data. Now, what we've seen around the rest of the globe is that they haven't adopted CSRD. Um, that has been led by the uh, discussions from the IFRS and the ISSB, so ISSB being the International Sustainability Standards Board. And the ISSB has, in some of this year, actually published its proposed framework around disclosure requirements. Now, in the UK, at the moment, the FCA has not yet announced a timetable for mandatory compliance with the ISSB standards, but we fully expect that to come um, in the near future. Again, what, what brings me joy about this is that the UK will be adopting that, that global approach 
it has a massive benefit to end companies because the competing priorities, if every regulator sets out their own framework, companies will spend their entire time collecting that data that needs to be provided to each of the jurisdictions. And it will inevitably be similar, but not quite the same. So for me, the UK adopting the ISSB approach makes an awful lot of sense. Now, for companies that are already providing data under CSRD, the good news is there is a lot of overlap between um, what we see both with ISSB and of course, some of the specialist uh, requirements around things like the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, and of course, TNFD. We haven't really touched on nature, but that's the Task Force on Nature Related um, Financial Disclosures will we'll, we'll be following as well. So whilst we're seeing... Um, regions and countries moving at different pace, what I think is really encouraging for companies is that we are seeing much greater commonality of how this will be approached. Well, Hannah, we've covered a lot there, and I know that going into disclosures always opens us up to talking about loads of different schemes. So I just wanted to summarise really what this means to for UK PLC and green corporate finance in the UK and whether there is still an opportunity for the UK to be a leader in some parts of disclosures. I know you've mentioned that the EU has moved faster than us on some things post-Brexit, but you've mentioned some things like transition plans and TCFD that we were first mover on. So essentially, what's the state of play in, in the UK going into 2024? Fantastic question. And I absolutely think that the UK can maintain that sort of leadership position in certain areas. And one of the um, examples is really around the, the TPT framework or the Transition Plan Task Force. What we really need from companies is clearly the how they're going to deliver their net zero ambition and the TPT framework. And we've obviously um, in the very recent past seen that sector guidance coming out as well is a place that we can start to, to really be able to assess and understand how companies are actually going to deliver what is, um, you know, some very ambitious goals that have been set. So I see the TPT as being one of those areas that the, the UK um, can maintain that leadership position. Great, Hannah. We covered so much ground that I thought it was probably worth ending on a positive note and a takeaway for the UK. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast for yeah, our last edition of 2023 and obviously wishing you a happy and healthy end to the year. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you very much, Sarah, and a happy new year to you too. You are listening to the Sustainability Uncovered podcast and you've just heard our interview with Lloyds Bank. Edie's delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. Thank you very much there to Hannah and Lloyds Bank Corporate and Institutional. Now into part two, and Sarah, we're reaching that point in the show where usually you deliver up a meticulously timed segment or summary of sorts and 
considering this is the end of year special episode of Sustainability Uncovered, I think it's only right that we uncover the year that was in climate action news. You and Matt, Dandar Reporter City, have been at the front line delivering up all the news and features on the ed.net website over the past year. So I think you're in as good a position as any to give us a, a two-minute end-of-year wrap-up for the hottest sustainability stories and developments of 2024, if you're up for it. Are you up for it? I guess I have to be up for it. I have indeed gone through the site and pulled some of our best read stories and then um, some other ones which really are not to be missed milestones if you are to reflect on the year. Good. I'm going to be listening intently to this one then. Um, So would you like some royalty-free background music? Yes. Okay, I'm glad you said yes. I haven't actually got any right to play right now. I'll, I'll overdub it. You'll like what I've picked out. Well, here's Sarah with Edie's Top 5 Sustainability Stories of 2023. So I'm going to start chronologically, cast your minds back to January 2023 with the publication of the Net Zero Review for the UK from Chris Skidmore MP, essentially setting out a more business friendly, growth friendly pathway to Net Zero for the UK as requested by Liz Truss during her short premiership. Government took until the end of March to respond and took up some recommendations, including the establishment of a solar task force. But they um, axed some others, like ending routine flaring to a tighter timeline. They also didn't take up Skidmore's recommendation for a new office to coordinate intergovernment departmental work on net zero. So this really started the year with a bang. And things didn't slow down as we headed into February. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak disbanded Bayes, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, instead creating the Department for Business and Trade and the Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero. He selected Grant Shapps to lead Desnes, as it was then called. So this was actually our most read story of the year. Um, No prizes for guessing that one, really. It was a massive shake-up to how things were done in terms of green policy making in the UK. Heading into spring, story number three, the European Parliament voted to clamp down on product claims backed by offsetting, including carbon neutral and carbon negative, in a move that doubtless will affect sustainability communications as we head into 2024 and beyond but this didn't put apple off of launching a major new carbon neutral project in the autumn heading into june while most people were heading on their holidays ed readers were reading about the launch of the issb's first two standards which aim to unify corporate climate disclosures so this was our second most read story of the year Heading into September, the big story was the fact that the UN published its first draft of the Global Plastics Treaty. So everyone's talked about the UAE consensus that came out of COP, but this is another multilateral UN document um, on the sustainability agenda for 2023. So the first draft came out September the 4th. Further talks ran into late November and there's still lots to be agreed on on the table in terms of whether the targets are global and national, whether they're voluntary and how reporting works. So that's five stories. I did sneak in an extra sixth about the COP28 closing in December 13th because I wouldn't want anyone to think that we haven't been working (laughs) since September for anything but, but those are your top stories in brief for this year. More about all of them on the website. Well, there we go. I can't quite believe those stories were all in 2023. Yeah. Some of those. The Bayes disbanding is probably the one that shocks me the most. I thought that was years ago. But <laughs> there we go. Um, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, Matt, I'm wondering how many of those articles were written by you? Um, the, a lot of them, because they were so big, were re- relatively a joint effort because um, um, 
we have our new three-pronged approach to, to the bigger news stories to, to kind of really give our audience information that's relevant for them rather than just having to go to the nationals and get an oversight so um, yeah I think a lot of that was um, was a joint effort. Hmm. That was the most diplomatic answer you've ever given Matt it gave you an opportunity there to steal all the praise but yeah and there was no football metaphor either (laughs) so I'm going to cut him off before he squeezes one in. Game, game in two halves. Oh. <laughs> right, that is almost a wrap for this bumper end of year episode of Sustainability Uncovered. But for one very special final segment, uh, and I am of course talking about our big fat sustainability quiz of the year. But there's a twist because Sarah, given that you've done both interviews for this episode and that top stories of the year segment, I thought I'd be kind to you and not ask you to come up with a whole bunch of quiz questions yourself and instead pit you against Matt. I see Matt smiling there. Don't mind this. This, this, feels like a, this feels like a step up. There we go, Matt's back. Um, basically, this is a, a risk of everyone finding out that I basically don't read ED and that you and Matt do all the hard work on the news desk. I thought I'd conveniently take up the role of quid, quiz master here. So, pens and paper at the ready. Five questions. There are points on offer, varying points for different questions. But just do make sure you're noting down your answers and not frantically Googling in the background, Matt. Question one. The UK hit a major milestone this year as we passed the one trillionth kilowatt hour of electricity generated from renewable energy sources, the equivalent of everyone in the UK watching every James Bond movie 13 times a day every day for a year. That's not the question. There is no question there. The question is, it took 50 years for us to reach that milestone. Based on current projections, how many years will it take for us to reach the next trillionth kilowatt hour generated by renewable energy? How many James Bond movies does a wind turbine generate is what I've heard. So the number of years it will take for us to generate another trillion kilowatt hours in the UK. Question two. Uh, I'm going to turn now to the famous circularity gap report that comes out from the Circle Economy Foundation every year. It essentially tells us how far away or how much nearer, it's usually how much further away we are from achieving a circular economy globally. What percentage of the world was rated as circular by Circle Economy in that report this year? We need a decimal point. You can have a decimal point if you want, unless you want to go for a round percentage. It will be the closest percentage wins here. Oh, I'm rounding it, personally. Okay, I'll round as well. Yeah. Okay. Question three. Two points on offer for this one. Who said this? Instead of exploiting natural resources to make shareholder returns, we're turning shareholder capitalism on its head by making the earth our only shareholder. I don't know this one. You get one point for the company and one point for the exact name of the person who said it. Right, um, question four. More than $85 billion was committed to climate finance at the recent COP28 climate summit according to its organizers in the uae four countries pledged over a hundred million dollars at cop 28 into climate finance can you name those four countries one point for each that doesn't mean list every country you can possibly think of matt and then hope you can only list a maximum of four countries (laughs) on to question five I should have mentioned, actually, in one of these five questions, there's going to be a kind of very subtle but shameless plug uh, for ED, so you can guess which one of the five it will be. Question five. ED's flagship event, ED24, is taking place on the 20th and 21st of March, 24, in London. Shout out to Jade, uh, who's been on several previous episodes of this podcast, but is currently working away on the event. Who is our closing keynote speaker? There's a choice of three here. Is it Lucy Siegel, the broadcaster and journalist? Is it Chris Packham? the naturalist and TV presenter? Or is it Chris Skidmore, the author of the UK's 
famous net zero review. Right, that was question five of five. So we'll run back through the questions and the answers. I enjoy being quiz master. I think I've got the, the tone of oh, voice no, for it. Oh, no, that's not what we wanted to hear, <laughs> is it, Matt? <laughs> right, first question was, how long will it take the UK to reach the next trillionth kilowatt hour of renewable energy? Matt, your answer? Um, 10 years. 15 years? Oh, Matt steals the point. It was five oh. years. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's progression, isn't it? It took 50 years to reach the first. So Matt with one point. Second question was the circularity gap report. How circular is the world as of 2023? Uh, 9% circular. And Matt? Uh, six. Oh, it was 7.2. <laughs> I think Matt, <laughs> Matt's closer by about 0.4% or something. Uh, it's 7.2% circular, apparently, which is not, not good news. It's been going down and down each year. OK, Matt, with two points. The third question was the who said this around shareholder capitalism and turning it on its head with the earth being their only shareholder. Matt, did you get the company and or the name? I think I've got the company. I, I, I don't have an individual name, but I'm pretty sure it's Patagonia. Correct. So one point to Matt, yeah. Sarah. I wrote Patagonia. It's their founder, Yvonne Chouinard. Oh, I hope that's I've correct. his name right. Yes, you have. You've got both yeah. points. So two points to Sarah, one to Matt. Okay, question four was, what were the four countries that pledged over $100 million into climate finance at COP? Matt, your countries? I think I've guessed two, and I think I know two. Uh, UAE, Germany, UK, US. Uh, you're correct on two out of four. Yeah. UAE and Germany were correct. Yeah. Uh, Sarah? I, I got the UAE and Germany as well. I also fumbled on the US, but for my fourth, I picked Canada. Ah, you both no, weren't able to get those other two. It was France and Italy completed oh. the four. But yeah, Germany and the UAE um, uh, were as well the largest contributors, each pledging at least $100 million. So that leaves us currently, as we move into the crucial fifth question, with Sarah on four points and Matt on five points. The fifth question was, who's that closing keynote speaker at ED24? Was it Lucy Siegel, Chris Packham or Chris... <laughs> Sorry, that's my dog. He's right. he's angry that we're not going out. <laughs> yeah. The Matt. suspense is really killing him. <laughs> yeah. Who did you go for, Matt? See, I didn't actually was one hundred percent sure about this. Um, in terms of like the, the closing bit, kind of got me a little bit, but I'm sure it's Chris Packham. And Sarah, you'll see on my notes it's Chris Packham. Yeah, this is correct. You both know Edie too well, well enough. Um, it is indeed Chris Packham, uh, which leaves the final result as Matt on five and Sarah on four. Congratulations and a round of applause in the studio to Matt. Um, I should say you can find out more and get your tickets to ed24 event.ed.net forward slash forum. Uh, congratulations to Matt. You know, as that great saying goes, the most sustainable kilowatt of energy is the one you don't use. Well, the most sustainable quiz prize is the one that doesn't exist. Um, so enjoy the prize, Matt. Um, you can at least have the crown of knowing that you're the most knowledgeable team member by one point, at least for the next Oh, few that's weeks. all I need. That will, that will feed my ego for quite some time. Good. And so I think that's just about a wrap for this episode of the show and, and final episode of the year. Uh, a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered uh, and a special thanks as ever to our podcast partner Lloyds Bank. We'll be back again in January once we've all broken our New Year's resolutions, I'm sure. Uh, but until then, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.